The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It is great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. On this week's episode, we'll be diving deep into the exciting and complex world of supplier financing with the one and only Nicole Harder, a senior director in Embark's National Quality Group. Adam, Nicole, it's great to see you. Good to Thanks see you too. Thanks for letting me be here again. Absolutely. Well, we just finished Valentine's Day and the viewers and listeners want to know, did you do anything fun and exciting? Uh, we did a little staycation here in Dallas. Oh, wonderful. We stayed um, at the same hotel where we had our wedding reception at. So, so oh, we went to dinner. Sounds very romantic. Yeah. I love it. Adam, anything fun? We didn't do anything specific for Valentine's Day because we're, we're going to be doing a trip in, uh, in early March. So just kind of putting off fun plans and saving for that instead. There you go. So just a nice dinner, you know, kind of the... Typical. Typical, you typical. know, typical night. Yeah, well, wonderful. What well, about you? Uh, same with us. You had Nothing. the love bug bite you or what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nothing too exciting with us. Uh, went to one of our uh, favorite spots nice. in Tampa for, for dinner and drinks. So nice. just always a nice night. Yeah. But, well, great. Well, let's just go ahead and dive right into this. Adam, I'm going to start with you uh, talking about supplier financing. For those of uh, our listeners and viewers that might not be familiar with it, Talk to us a little bit about how a supplier financing arrangement might work. Yeah, so you'll often hear about these arrangements being referred to a bunch of different things. So before I kind of explain it, just in case you're like, I don't know if I have supplier financing, but we do have something else that sounds like, sort of sounds like it. And that, that might be because it's often referred to you know different things. So you'll hear like structured payable arrangements, vendor payable programs, reverse factoring, things like that are other names for supplier financing. But it's basically when an entity purchases goods or services on credit from a supplier, the buyer may then sometimes enter into an arrangement with a financial institution or just some type of intermediary party um, under which that party then offers to purchase the receivables from that are held by the supplier. Um, so this arrangement generally gives suppliers the option to one, settle their trade receivables by obtaining a payment from the intermediary either before the inv invoice date is due, um, which will often be at a discounted amount, or it would just be on the invoice due date at its full amount. Okay. And so talk to me a little bit about some of the benefits or the rationale that parties uh, would experience when entering into some of these agreements. Yeah, so each of the three parties, you know, there's there's obviously benefits for each each party depending on which role you play in the arrangement. So first starting with suppliers. So the big thing is they're just able to monetize their accounts receivable sooner. Um, which one, you know, if you think about just from a credit exposure, it reduces the risk of being exposed to that credit of their buyers. So they get they get the the cash flow in earlier. 
Um, so the financial institutions, the intermediary party, the ones that are essentially buying those receivables, they earn income based on that early payment discount that's often uh, provided by the suppliers. And then they also will charge transaction fees to the suppliers. So that's kind of how they get their upside in the arrangement. And then from a buyer perspective, the reason they may want to be a part of this is uh, oftentimes it allows them to extend their payment terms. Um, so they're no longer under the guise of the original invoice payment terms with the supplier, but now that the intermediary has taken over, that intermediary may provide them longer payment terms. So it allows them to kind of stretch out the ability to have to put cash outlays um, for those invoices as well. And then sometimes, you, know, you may not see this as often, but sometimes the discount that the intermediary might get, you know, like let's say they get a 2% early payment discount, they might be willing to share a portion of that discount with the buyer as well. So maybe they give them a half percent of that or a percentage of that. So, you know, maybe a little upside there as well for the buyers. And Adam, you might cover this uh, in later portions of our discussion, but does that change who the liability is held with um, from the buyer's perspective? So said another way, is my liability still with the supplier of the good or is there a change now if they, if they do enter into that agreement where I am now having a liability with the financing uh, institution or intermediary? We will get into that. Okay. Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to jump the gun a little bit too much here, but yeah, there, there are some factors you would definitely want to think about. Um, and then it's, there's also factors related to that about what type of liability, like, do you actually truly still just have a trade payable like you would normally have if you purchase something from your supplier or because, you know, now this intermediary bank or financial institution has taken over and provided you a different payment terms, does that change the arrangement to where you potentially have a debt arrangement now with that right. party? So, uh, so yeah, let's, let's get into that in a bit for sure. All right. We'll <laughs> jump in the gun a little bit. Well, so my next question is, I know that the FASB recently issued updated guidance on supplier financing programs. Why did the FASB decide it was important to take on this project yep. and ultimately issue new guidance? What was driving that and anything else that our listeners might need to know? Yeah, we've, so I think stakeholders in general, they're, they're hearing more and more about people kind of entering into these types of supplier financing arrangements. So we've seen a rise in popularity. So as these continue to rise, and I think investors are kind of like looking at these arrangements and trying to figure out like how are they reflected or explained in the financial statements, they realized there wasn't a lot there about it. So there's very inconsistent information. Some entities were maybe putting more stuff out there, some weren't. It's largely driven by that there just wasn't any explicit guidance and gap um, to address these types of arrangements and what potentially needs to be disclosed or how they need to be accounted for, et cetera. So the FASB essentially took on a project and then obviously issued new guidance to address that need of stakeholders to basically provide information about how these programs work, the impacts they potentially have on a reporting entities, working capital, their liquidity, cash flows, et cetera. Okay, so Adam, talk to me a bit about the new ASU that was issued in 2022. I believe it's ASU 2022-04. What exactly does the new ASU cover at a high level? So the new ASU focused specifically on required disclosures, you know, for entities that use these supplier financing programs. 
And the disclosures really focus on things like the key terms of those arrangements and programs, as well as information about their obligations that are outstanding at each reporting period. So like I said, it's, it's very disclosure focused, um, doesn't really get into the, a, lot of, a lot of the other accounting considerations that other guidance issued by the FASB might otherwise get into. Okay, Nicole, gonna switch over to you. Adam mentioned disclosures. Does the ASU cover anything related to recognition, measurement, or presentation of supplier financing agreements? No, so Adam kind of just started um, talking a little bit about, no, the guidance really is just around disclosures. Um, the, the obligations are either classified as either trade payables or bank debt, depending on the terms of the arrangement. There are some some factors that can be considered to kind of help um, make this determination. And then it's important to kind of think through these factors and considerations um, and document con your conclusions because classifying the obligation as either debt versus your general trade payables can have broader implications such as, impl such as impacting a company's debt covenants, for example. Okay, so if I'm a company trying to determine how my obligations should be recorded in the financials, what are some factors to think think through to help make that determination? Key points we need to dis discuss and consider. Yeah, so that's a great question. I do want to clarify that there is currently no explicit guidance in U.S. GAAP for making this determination. Um, you know, as we've kind of touched on a, a few times now, the newest, the new ASU did not address this. Um, you know, but maybe one of the first things to think about is, is the supplier finance program offered to a wide variety of companies or a variety of suppliers? Um, if it is, it could be more akin to a trade payable. If it isn't, if it's really only limited to, um, you know, a handful of vendors, then it could suggest that the obligation is more akin to debt. Um, the next factor to think about is, are the terms of the payables similar to what other buyers would have without a supplier finance program? Um, if they are, you could probably make an argument that it should be classified as a trade payable. If not, then maybe the obligation is more akin to debt. And then the last thing to think about is, is the program designed to extend payment terms for the entity beyond what is customary? Um, if it does extend those terms, then yes, you would probably make an argument that it's more akin to debt. Um, if not, then you would say it's more akin to um, being just a general trade payable. There can also be other terms for supplier financing program that suggests that an arrangement is more akin to debt versus a trade payable. Um, this includes things like extinguishing the original liability, um, a change in the price of the goods or services to provide compensation to the vendors or suppliers who extended the payment terms, um, changing seniority of the trade payables, and then lastly, requiring collateral to be posted on the trade payables. Okay, so Adam, let's switch back over to you and talk a little bit about the new ASU then. Who is in scope uh, for the new ASU? Yeah, so as far as what entities are in scope, I mean, it really applies to all reporting entities that essentially have a supplier finance program that they use in connection with purchasing their goods or services. So the real question that a lot of companies need to ask about is whether or not you know, if they've got an arrangement that kind of sounds like this is whether or not 
they truly have what is considered a supplier finance arrangement um, first to figure out if the ASU is actually going to apply. Okay, so does the new ASU define what is a supplier financing arrangement explicitly so a reporting entity can make that call, or do they keep this somewhat vague? Yeah, I don't. It's not necessarily somewhat vague. I would just say they they weren't extremely prescriptive in saying this is what a supplier finance program is, um, but really wanted to allow companies to look at indicators to figure out whether or not a program's potentially been established if they have an arrangement that kind of fits the bill. And so, you know, the rationale here was like, obviously we talked about the rise in popularity of these supplier finance arrangements that have, has taken place, you know, currently, um, but they're still relatively new in practice. And I think they were afraid to be in like too black and white and what definitionally qualifies one because how these maybe these programs are structured, how they evolve over time could change. And so they felt it was it was better to use more of an indicator route. Okay, so Adam, absent explicit guidance, how should a reporting entity evaluate indicators that a program exists? Yeah, so just, you know, step one to figure out if a program has been established is, you know, first looking at all the available evidence you have and specifically looking at arrangements that are between the reporting entity and both, you know, some type of financial provider or bank or intermediary, and then suppliers whose invoices have been confirmed as valid. So you've got an arrangement like that, and it includes all the parties we talked about. And then really the big indicator here is that, you know, if the buyer's commitment to pay a party is someone other than the supplier, um, for that confirmed invoice. So their commitment to pay is to the intermediary or the you know, financial institution versus the original supplier. Okay, Nicole, back over to you. Are there any arrangements that are not included in the guidance that may at first seem to satisfy the indicator guidance that a program is established? Yes, actually there are. Um, the FASB agreed that there are certain arrangements that the new guidance does not apply to. Um, the first one relates to credit card arrangements. So the guidance doesn't apply here because the supplier would have an option to request early payment from the finance provider in a supplier finance program, whereas with a credit card arrangement, it just directs the finance provider to pay the supplier. Um, and the second one relates to payment processing arrangements. Um, so these don't qualify because they do not result in suppliers having an option to request early payment. Okay, so once a company determines that they have established a supplier financing program, what does the new ASU require as far as disclosures are concerned? Yeah, so so the main thing to really think about, um, you know, the main objective is just required disclosures um, for which you know, it's making the buyer provide sufficient information that allows users of the financial statements to have, you know, understand the nature, the activity during the period, changes from period to period, and potential magnitude of all of its supplier finance arrangements. So keep in mind, um, these disclosures are required, and regardless of how the obligation is reported on the balance sheet, so that is either as a payable or debt. Okay, so to achieve that objective, let's break down some of the specifics. I assume there would be general disclosure outlining the key terms, conditions of the program, et cetera? Yep, so that's exactly right. 
Companies need to disclose the payment terms, you know, including the timing of payments, as well as any assets that are pledged as collateral or any other forms of securities or um, other guarantees. Companies are also required to include disclosure about the obligation amount that the buyer has confirmed as valid. Um, so this includes the amount outstanding that remains unpaid by the buyer as of the end of the reporting period. Um, a description of where that amount is presented on the balance sheet. So whether it's an AP or some other balance sheet line item. Um, and then if presented in more than one line item, you know, the amount presented in each line item. And then as well as a roll forward of the obligation showing the opening balance, the amounts added to the program, the amount settled under the program, and then the closing balance. But um, from an interim perspective, Companies just have to um, disclose the amount of obligations outstanding at the end of the period that the entity has confirmed as valid um, that remains unpaid by the buyer. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about if you have multiple supplier financing agreements. Do we need to have these disclosures for each separate uh, financing agreement or is there a way to consolidate this? Generally, no. An entity that does have multiple supplier financing programs, they can um, aggregate the disclosures, but preparers should be cautioned that it shouldn't sacrifice the overall objectives of the ASU. So if programs have substantially different terms or conditions, you know, it should be clear Separate within those disclosures. disclosures. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Adam, back over to you. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about SEC registrants and what expectations are there for MDNA? Uh, has the SEC weighed in on any additional disclosures they expect outside the financial statements for SEC registrants on these programs? Yeah, they have. I mean, I think it's no surprise <laughs> that they also would expect um, if you're obviously going to be having discussion or not discussion, rather disclosure about them under the ASU, then obviously there needs to be discussion about it within a registrant's MDNA, especially when they're material, right? Both to the current period, but also thinking about expected impacts to liquidity in future periods. So, you know, if these arrangements are over time, you know, definitely got to think not just about what's now, but also what could be. So similar to kind of the ASU, you know, the SEC would expect an MBA in MDNA um, general discussion around, you know, general terms of the program, including any risks or benefits to the program. Um, if there are any guarantees of the program that are maybe made by one of the reporting entity subsidiaries or its parents, um, any potential changes or plans to change or, you know, terms of the program itself. So whether it's extending terms to suppliers, any factors that may limit the strategy, and then just information about just general trends or uncertainties that could exist that may impact the extended payment terms that are provided by the program itself. Okay, super helpful to point out. When should reporting entities start worrying about some of these new disclosure requirements for the ASU? Do they have some time? What they don't. Like? Okay. So I, <laughs> I think that was really like a catalyst for us really wanting to kind of uh, have this conversation yeah. for sure. So for all entities, so this is both public and private. Um, so for calendar year and companies like this ASU is effective in 2023. So that, that includes interim and annual financial statements. So companies need to be more or less thinking about it now, particularly if they have these arrangements or plan to enter into these arrangements during during the year. 
Um, just making sure that they've got, you know, processes and procedures around, you know, providing those disclosures and preparing those disclosures. So one thing to keep in mind is uh, one of the disclosure requirements is around including a roll forward. And the transition guidance actually provides a little more time to actually require that roll forward disclosure. So all of the other requirements are effective for 2023, but that roll forward disclosure would be effective for all entities calendar year entities in 2024, um, including interim periods within those years. And this is something that Embark could help our listeners with if they had any questions sure. or needed help with preparing these uh, sure. disclosure statements or anything around that. So yeah. a shameless plug right there for Embark. Definitely. Adam, talk to me a little bit about some of the nuances to consider in the transition method for the disclosures. What are some of the things that we need to keep in mind here? Yeah, so just a couple things to kind of maybe clarify there. So we just talked about the role for disclosure. So the role for disclosure, when it's effective, or you can also early adopt, I guess I should have stated that as well. That disclosure is only provided prospectively. So just the year of adoption and then going forward. Um, so you don't necessarily have to prepare a comparative roll forward if you've got comparative prior periods um, for other balance sheets that you may have. On the other hand, all of the other disclosure requirements, those disclosures have to be made retrospectively for all periods um, where a balance sheet is provided. So just kind of keeping that in mind. Um, and then the only other thing I maybe would want to clarify is like in the year of initial adoption, you know, you're obviously going to have a lot of people preparing disclosures that have all the key terms and conditions of their programs. And they're going to include those in both the interim financial statements if they prepare interim financial statements as well as their annual but after that year of initial adoption, you really only have to include those like general terms and conditions of the programs on an annual basis. Um, I think it's just in this initial year to make sure users are aware that we're including it in all periods that are, we prepare financial statements for. Okay, well, this is great. We've covered a lot of wonderful information here. Adam, anything else that we wanna remind our listeners to before we wrap up? Yeah, the only thing real quickly is just on an international front. So, you know, maybe companies that report under IFRS is that the IASB also has a similar project as it relates to supplier um, finance programs um, that you'll want to be looking out for. That project itself, you know, there was an exposure draft put out, comments have been received, and now I think the IASB is, at least as of this recording, is kind of thinking about next steps, how they want to proceed. Um, but, you know, like I said, keep in mind that it does align largely with the ASU that uh, the FASB put out under U.S. GAAP, but there are some differences there. So if you do report under IFRS, just, just be on the lookout for that, that there, there might be some exceptions to what we talked about today. Well, great. Well, again, really appreciate you both being here today with me. Uh, enjoyed our conversation on supplier financing. Hopefully for our listeners, this was uh, as informative for you as it was for me. Uh, <laughs> thank you, as always, for listening to the Accounting Matters podcast powered by Embark. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.